Welcome to Gospel Wabi Sabi. I'm Jeff Ebert and this is Season 1, Episode 15, where we're looking at the Gospel of John and how Jesus transforms people, broken, imperfect, rebellious, and yet precious and beautiful in the eyes of God. If you'd like to financially support the production of Gospel Wabi Sabi, please look in the episode description. There's a link there that you can follow that'll explain your options and how to do that. And thank you very much. Well, we're in the fifth chapter of John's Gospel, and so far we've seen uh, how Jesus interacts with people around the pool of Bethesda, where the sick and the lame and discarded people gathered, hoping to be healed. Jesus chose to heal one man, and that got him into a lot of trouble because it was the Sabbath day, which meant no work could be done. And in the minds of the religious leaders, healing a paralyzed man was work and therefore taboo. Well, Jesus didn't subscribe to that belief, and in fact, it angered him to see how the intent of the idea of Sabbath had been twisted and turned into a legalistic form of religious oppression. So Jesus got into trouble because in the presence of human agony, he did not keep the Sabbath in the way that these self-made rules required. He responded to a need, and he explained to them that he was going to keep on doing such things because it was the will of his Father and that he and the Father worked together. And that sent some people over the edge, because Jesus very clearly was claiming to have a unique, intimate relationship with God, and in fact made himself equal with God, and to them that was blasphemy. Which indeed it was, if it wasn't true. Then Jesus said something that pushed the envelope even more. And I'm reading John 5, starting with verse 20. I'll read all the way through verse 30. For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. I never realized just how dense chapter 5 really is. There is so much in here to try and unpack, and I'm going to be relying on Ray Stedman's commentary on this chapter to try and help me uh, get it all in. So here we go. When Jesus says the Father raises the dead and gives to the Son the same power, he is declaring the first of these greater works that he mentions in verse 20. Go through this chapter and just write down all the things that Jesus claims for himself here. 
It's really an amazing, astounding list. Jesus says here that he has the power to give life to the dead. And then he keeps going. The Father has given all judgment over to the Son, meaning Jesus is the final arbiter of human destiny. He's the one who will determine where everybody will end up for eternity. He's the judge with all judgment in his hands. You know, we tend to think of Jesus as our defense attorney at the time of the final judgment, which he is. But here we're told he's also will be the judge too. Savior, defense attorney, which is the paraclete, and judge all in one. That's enough just to really make my head spin. And I hope you can spend some time just reflecting on these multiple roles that Jesus plays in the drama of our salvation. Jesus speaks of the dead in verse 21. Does he mean the spiritually dead or the physically dead? Well, in verses 24 through 27, he deals specifically with those who are spiritually dead. People who never think about their accountability to God were spiritually dead. People who never make any response to the things of God, who believe that their existence is bounded, you know, only by, you know, from womb to tomb. These people are spiritually dead. But in fact, all of us begin life being unaware and unresponsive to anything beyond, you know, what appeals to the body and the soul. And so we begin in spiritual death. But Jesus has the power to give life to such people. In verses 28 through 30, he's talking about those who are physically dead, those who are in the graves, he says clearly. He claims he also has the power to give them life. Thus, both forms of death are included in this statement. We have great difficulty today understanding how the words of Jesus sounded to those who heard him back then. But these are amazing claims. When you read them, you're forced to conclude that Jesus really was one of the three things, as as C.S. Lewis famously described. Either Jesus was a lunatic, a crazy man, suffering from delusions of grandeur because he believed all these things to be true, but they were not true. Or he was a liar. He knew what he was saying was false, but said them anyway. He was a deceiver trying to pass himself off as something that he knew he was not. Or he was telling the truth, which means he is Lord of life. And he holds all of life in his hands. Lunatic, liar, Lord, there really are no other alternatives. The claim of Jesus is that life belongs to him. That's the main thing in this portion. He only loans it to us for a little while. This is so important because it cuts right through the philosophy and the propaganda of our day. All of our media and culture, it tells us that, you know, your life belongs to you and you can do with it whatever you want. Your life is 100% yours and it's up to, to you to make yourself whatever you desire to be. That is what is fed to us all the time, 24-7. And it's a big lie. Your life is not yours. You did not invent it. You didn't create it. It was given to you. You were handed your life. And one of these days, friends, you're going to have to give it back. You're going to have to give it back. Those two great facts underscore all of life, yet how easy it is to forget them. We were Life was given to us, and at some point, we're going to give it back. How frequently the world tries to operate on a basis that is not true, that life belongs to us and it'll go on as long as we want it to. That's why it's often such a shock when people encounter their own mortality, maybe through the death of somebody who's their own age or a relative or something like that. When they have this brief glimpse and awareness, they realize that they are not going to live on this earth forever. And often when people 
uh, realize this, they get mad at God. They get mad at God for not promising them a long and happy life, that somehow he owes it to them so that they can die peacefully in their sleep when they're 95. People really do get angry at God when mortality strikes because it shows that we are not in control. And that's a frightening realization, unless you know the Lord and can yield your life to him. One of the reasons we gather in worship every week is that we need to be reminding ourselves that many of the things that are being said to us by the world are not true. They're not based on reality. And sooner or later, an exciting, compelling, terrifying reality is going to crash in upon us, and we will have to deal with life the way it really is. This is what this claim of Jesus is all about. He claims not only to possess the power to give physical life, but spiritual life as well. Spiritual life, it's what the Bible sometimes calls eternal life, or, you know, it's this different level of existence. It's frequently even translated as everlasting life. But that conveys the idea that this present earthly life will just be extended indefinitely like it is. That's not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about a spiritual or eternal life. It's rather describing a quality of life that begins now. It's true that it goes on forever, but the primary thing the Bible's talking about is the richness and the fullness and the beauty of life now. It is a quality of life that is enduring. It is an enriching life, and it cannot be diminished by circumstances, and it won't be ended by death. It's a quality of life that is given to us now. It begins here, not in some future heaven after we die. The claim of Jesus is that he alone has the power to give that kind of life. Because Jesus gives to whom he pleased is pleased to give it. That makes him also the arbiter of the destiny of human beings. He is the judge of all people. It is his knowledge of who is to receive eternal life and who is to remain without it that constitutes him as an infallible judge of human destiny. These two ideas blend together. If Jesus gives you life, you are on your way to heaven. If he gives you eternal life, you will never die. You will never taste the emptiness and the awful loneliness of death. You will immediately have a fuller experience of life than you have ever had before, but only if Jesus gives it to you. He is the sole possessor of spiritual life. If he does not give you life, then you remain exactly the way you were on your way, quite frankly, to hell, to separation from God. All those negative things the scripture means when it speaks of hell, of a life without God, of without blessing, without the richness, without the fullness. If this, if this claim of Jesus is real, it clearly makes him the most important person in anybody's life. If your very physical existence has come from him and your spiritual destiny is in his hands, then he is the most important person you will ever have to deal with. And even more than that, He's the most important person in the whole world and the central figure of all the universe, which is what is taught throughout all of Scripture. In the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which was also written by the Apostle John, there's a tremendous scene described in chapter 5 where John takes us beyond the limits of earth and shows us the throne of God. The creatures of heaven are all gathered around the throne, worshiping God, and in the center of the scene, John sees a lamb that has been slain. Here is his description beginning with verse 11. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. 
In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. You see, there we see Jesus sitting at the heart of the universe. Because of this, no Christian can ever put Jesus Christ on par with anybody else. Muhammad, Buddha, Gandhi, the Virgin Mary, Moses, prophets, any religious teacher of any kind. This is why we cannot call a Christian a person who accepts the teachings of Jesus or who adopts his moral standards or who admires him as a social or a political reformer. That doesn't make you a Christian. Jesus himself does not allow us that option. He is above all of this. He alone has the right to give the gift of eternal life. In his first letter, uh, the same apostle John wrote this about Jesus. He says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That's 1 John 5, 11 and 12. So the relationship you have with Jesus Christ is the most important relationship of life. It determines your ultimate destiny. And that leads to another great question. To whom and on what basis does Jesus give eternal life? Well, the answer to that question is given in one of the great verses here in Scripture, verse 24. Another incredibly powerful verse and an amazing statement by Jesus about his own self. It says, very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. What a great passage. That verse makes clear that when Jesus says he gives life, it is not a matter of arbitrary selection on his part. He does not point at people in some capricious way and say, well, you, 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 you and you and you, you can have eternal life and you, you and you, you can't have eternal life and so on. It's clear that there is a responsibility that we are to fulfill. To whom does Jesus give eternal life? To the man or woman, the boy or girl, who, and I quote, hears his words and believes in him who sent him. To the one who is willing to listen to his claims, to believe his credentials, and then to act on that basis, to follow him, to become his disciple. When one hears Jesus' words and obeys what he says, Notice what happens. Immediately, Jesus says he has eternal life, not he will have eternal life someday when he dies. He has it. He possesses it right then and there. Immediately, also, all judgment is passed. Such a one has passed from death to life already. Our Lord is making very clear to these ancient Jews and to everyone else ever since who reads his words, the terms on which one passes from death to life. Now, don't get all dragged into the debates about predestination versus free will and all that kind of stuff. We treat God's sovereignty and human responsibility too much like which came first, the chicken or the egg. I think both God's sovereignty and human free will, both are at work, and in the middle of that somewhere is this thing called mystery, where I don't think we will have it all figured out or create some system of theology that will reconcile all the tensions between those 
to concepts of sovereignty and free will. I'm comfortable trusting in the loving God who we're told desires that all will be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 2.4. So a little mystery on how that actually happens is okay with me. It's our job to share the gospel of grace with the world and cooperate with what the Spirit is doing to bring people to faith. Our proclamation is important because all of us are born with a sinful human nature, and that nature is headed for death. We don't like to talk about it. We put it out of our thoughts as long as possible. We don't even want to talk about it with people outside of the faith. But we're all headed towards death. Beyond death lies the second death, unless we have eternal life. Thus, the most important question anybody has to settle is whether he has believed in Jesus and received from his hand the gift of eternal life. In verse 25, Jesus extends this into the future. He says, Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. What does Jesus mean by these words, the time is coming? Well, it's a clear reference to the post-resurrection proclamation of the gospel, this new thing that would happen when the Spirit of God would come in a fresh new way and this gift of eternal life would be given to Jews and Gentiles, to everybody who's willing to receive it, all alike, all around the world and through all succeeding periods of time. It is the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. Already the time of which Jesus speaks, it's more than 2,000 years long. During that time, whoever hears his word and believes on him who sent him, Jesus says that person receives eternal life. But Jesus also says it's now. It now is. In other words, it's already happening. By those words, he's referring to his own giving to individuals the gift of life. We've already seen this in John's gospel. Nicodemus, the troubled religious leader, came by night to see Jesus in an effort to find peace in his heart. Jesus said to him, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man will be lifted up on a cross, and whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Nicodemus believed and received the gift of eternal life. The Samaritan woman in chapter 4 at the well, who was living such an empty life, she came thirsty to Jesus. To her he said, if you knew who was speaking to you, You would have asked of him, and he would have given you a well of water springing up to eternal life. And so he gave her eternal life. She went away so excited she could not contain herself, brought the whole town out to hear this one who could give the gift of eternal life. So it was already happening. The time is coming, and now is, when the spiritually dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And then Jesus adds that, As the Son of God, as the one who was eternally with the Father, he has always had this ability to give life to the spiritually dead. He has this life within himself. He is the one who was always given eternal life. In the Old Testament, as well as the two, there's not two different gods. They're both the same God, Old Testament and New Testament. But he adds something, verse 27. And the Father has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. In other words, because Jesus has now become human and understands how we live and how we feel and what we face in our temptations, Jesus now has the right to pass judgment on whether or not we should have the gift of life or remain in death. It is because Jesus came among us that he understands us. He knows the pressures and the problems we face, and therefore he knows clearly when we have reached the place 
where we are ready to give up depending on ourselves and are able to receive the gift of life. To receive the gift of life is the only way by which a person can be permanently changed. The only thing that can transform us right at the very heart of our being and make us new again is this gift of eternal life. And those who have it can never be the same again. The growth process can sometimes be painful, as many of us know. But when the gift of life is there at the heart of our being, we can never go back to what we once were. That life is in God's Son. But all physical life is also in his hands. Verse 28. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Wow. What a tremendous claim. Jesus says there is coming a moment in history when all the dead, all of them, bad, good, evil, kind, loving, unloving, murderers, rapists, all of them, shall come forth from their graves. He is going to empty the cemeteries of the world. And then even the bodies of men and women will share in their final destiny. To those who have, quote unquote, done what is good, They're going to experience the resurrection of life. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be done what is good? Many people kind of just lift out this one verse, lift it out from the context, and kind of then make up their own ideas about what it means to do good. They say, you know, if you've been pretty nice to your neighbor, don't beat your wife too often, speak kindly to people now and then, you know, try your best, Uh, you've done your best to try and obey the Ten Commandments, then perhaps the good you've done will outweigh the evil and God's going to let you into heaven. It's not what this verse is saying at all. This is just a few verses removed from what Jesus said about the gift of eternal life. To do good, well, of course it means to those who have received eternal life. Only those in whom the life of God is dwelling can do good in God's eyes. Those who have obeyed his words, walked in fellowship with him, and shared his life, those are the ones who have done good. And what does done evil mean? Obviously, this refers to those who have refused this life, who have turned their backs on Christ's truth and have shut their ears to his offer of grace. Those who have denied even the witness of nature, the witness of their own inner hearts. Those are the ones who have all their life done what is evil, even though there were times that they thought they were doing good things and they may have done a few good things. They will come forth to the resurrection of judgment been reading uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity, with a group of guys, and he's very helpful at this point. Let me quote from uh, Mere Christianity at this point. Lewis says, God is going to invade this earth in force. But what is the good of saying you're on his side then, when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream? And something else, something it never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. Let me say that again. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you can choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. 
It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realize it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. It will not last forever. We must take it or leave it, unquote. It's why these words of Jesus are so important. No wonder people were frightened and challenged by what they heard that day. This chapter frightens and challenges me when I hear it. But look at this final verse of assurance in verse 30. Jesus says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. When it happens, there will be no argument against his judgment. No one is going to complain that it's unfair, because it is the work of both the Father and the Son. The Father who gave us life to begin with and who knows all that is in our hearts, and the Son who came among us and knows how we feel, how we're tempted, and is both our Savior and our Judge. We decide which He is going to be by the reaction we have to the truth. Either Savior or Judge, we decide which He is going to be by our reaction to His truth. There's a lot of heavy truth in this chapter. And we're not done yet. We still got some more to go. Next time, we're going to try and finish up on chapter five. But I really do encourage you to go back through and read the chapter thus far for yourself and just jot down a list of all the characteristics or the power or the claims of Jesus. It's really stunning to see so much packed into so few sentences. And remember, these are the words of Jesus himself about himself. So they feel doubly powerful. You know, people will say things like they like the teachings of Jesus, but they are not going to follow him. Uh, take him to this chapter. Let them actually read the teachings of Jesus about himself. I think a lot of people who say they love the teachings of Jesus have actually never really read what Jesus actually taught. So take him to this chapter. Let them read it. Because you can't say Jesus was a great religious teacher if what he taught here isn't true. This stuff is powerful. I mean, it's a nuclear because it reveals Jesus in all his glory and power while he is on the earth, before his resurrection, before his ascension. No wonder people started plotting to kill him. A lot to think about. I hope you have a great week. Take care. <music>